take your Bibles and stand with me one more time. I'm sorry. We do have a text to read today, and I do want to stand in honor of God's Word. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter. This is what the Word of God says. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would name them or call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can study your word, that we can come together to learn divine wisdom as we look at your revelation on such a practical and yet on such a profound topic such as marriage. I pray that in the following weeks as we look at this subject that you would accomplish 10,000 good things in our marriages and in the families of Heritage Grace. We so desperately need to hear from your word on this issue. We pray your blessing now on our time, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The subject of today's uh, message is God, marriage, and you. I told you last week that we're doing a series of practical messages where we will use that title, God, something, and you. I don't know any way to make it more eminently practical than you, or than that, than to say God and you. So there you go. But it is marriage that we're looking at today, and it is marriage that we'll be looking at for the next three weeks. Uh, I had originally planned one message on marriage, and don't get mad at me all at once. Because I realized that my three points were actually three distinct sermons. And so I decided to go uh, with the Spirit on that. Because I think it is a subject that is obviously worthy of more than just three messages. But but definitely three, and the three that I've outlined I hope will be uh, very helpful for our church. And I don't think there is a subject more important for a church than to talk about what is the sort of the makeup or the backbone of a church, which is the, this most foundational relationship in the church and in society, which is marriage. And of course, when we're talking about this subject, there is an array of aspects of marriage that need to be talked about. 
And so I thought, well, we will go back to the very, very foundation of marriage itself and to look at the Genesis prologue to talk about this important subject. I pray, I hope, and that's my prayer for our, our, uh, our studies here in the next few weeks, is that this will really be grounding for us, that we will really be sort of reoriented in what does God uh, have to say about this important subject. It's just marriage is in the air. I just did a wedding yesterday. It's fresh on my mind. And they're sitting here. And so I have a living parable sitting right in front of us today. Hiro and Jenny. Praise the Lord. I can call you Jenny again, right? It was hard during the ceremony to keep calling her Jennifer. But uh, that was also beautiful. Uh, The formality of marriage is beautiful. Uh, The the whole concept of marriage is beautiful. uh, Because it reminds us of what God intends for human relationships to be, and ultimately how that relationship uniquely reflects the gospel. And we will get into that, and so we will ease our way into the, 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 the deep gospel implications of marriage itself. But there is, like I said, scarcely a more uh, important uh, subject, because we live in a world where marriage itself is constantly undermined. I mean, let's face it, we're living in a context in which our society has perverted the whole design of God. That's why for our first uh, message here, uh, we're going to look at the design of marriage, the design of marriage. And this marriage was obviously designed in Genesis chapter 2, and so that's why we're there Everything outside of God's ordained design is a perversion. Uh, I get asked the question all the time uh, on a university campus by college students that want to know, hey, what is your opinion on gay marriage? And I usually look to them and say, you don't know what Christians believe about marriage? I mean, really, about gay marriage? Well, I guess I'll tell you since you asked. It is a perversion of God's design. Usually the crowd goes wild. But it is. Everything outside of what God has ordained in his word, whether it's homosexuality or fornication or adultery or bigamy or polygamy or uh, polyamorous relationships or anything else that society attempts. I wrote down here, even the humanization and sexualization of robots, which for us still it kind of makes us chuckle and really kind of Scratch our heads and like, really? Fast forward 50 years from now, no one will be scratching their heads. Uh, sadly, this is coming. And uh, that's why I stated it exactly the way uh, it should be stated, which is the humanization and sexualization of robots, because already people are striving to humanize, that is, give actual personhood to robots. Uh, this is scary times we're living in, folks. Uh, but whatever man thinks up of... Uh, robot with i with ai capabilities it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how crafty the serpent gets god's original institution of marriage is unshakable unbreakable which means that any other attempt to define marriage is ultimately futile it may exist in society but it doesn't exist in god's economy there is no such thing in god's economy as same sex marriage it doesn't exist uh, it's a figment of man's imagination. It's a vain, futile mockery 
of what God has ordained and whatever culture sends our way, ultimately we have God's revelation to remind us what it is. Now, as we begin our study of marriage, there are three aspects here of the design of marriage that I want to point out. And number one, as we look at verses 18 down to verse 20, is the what we can call the uh, a, a designed compatibility. A designed compatibility. Because this compatibility begins with fulfilling a void, if you read the text, right? Adam was not created to be alone. Simple enough. It is not good for man alone. Now think about it. In the creation thus far, God has made statement after statement after statement, pronouncing a, a benediction on his creation. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. And now we find out there is something that is not good. Namely, that man is by himself. Now, just on the face of it, we can all sort of identify with this, knowing all of our needs for community and companionship. But man is alone and it is not good because of what God called man to be. Man was to be the representative of God on earth. And he was to populate the earth with God's image to the ends of the earth. Something that he could not do by himself and something that he could not do with all of the creatures and all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the cattle and everything else that God had made. Nothing there in all of the realm of creation was suitable for the man to fulfill his calling in God's creation. So, God created for man a companion, somebody who was uniquely compatible for the man. And that is what marriage is all about, is that we enter into a relationship with compatibility. And we'll see that. But um, it's, it's also important to know that God created a helper for Adam that's really, really uh, very unique. As a matter of fact, the word helper there in the Hebrew where it says that God created uh, a helper for the man, um, it says here in verse 20, it says, Adam, there was found no helper suitable for him. That's a really interesting word that's used there in the Hebrew. The word helper literally speaks of someone that is of the opposite. That's really interesting because you would think that it was somebody that's of the same, meaning like a human being, right? But what's interesting about the compatibility here is that God made a compatible partner for the man that was actually an opposite of him. Isn't that remarkable? So Adam would have saw his reflection in the rivers of Eden, because there were no mirrors then, but he would have saw his reflection and saw himself as he was, but he would not have found in his own image what he needed. Uh, that's the problem with homosexuality, is because you're looking at the same image, thinking that the very same thing as yourself is what is going to fulfill you and what is going to complement you, and it does not. Compatibility only comes with someone who is of an opposite kind than you. There's a difference. And that really already begins to sort of set into motion that this helper was going to fulfill Adam in some way. And even though Adam could see his reflection, he needed somebody different to see God's perfect image. Look at the, just go back, Genesis chapter 1. 
uh, in uh, Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, we see that the image of God was not complete until there was a, comp- a creation of both Adam and Eve. And they together formed the image of God and ex- gave expression, full expression, to God's image and what it was supposed to be for. Verse 26 says, God said, let us make man in our image. See that there is man in our image according to our likeness. And let them, you see the plural there, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the old Sunday school line, you know, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, is true. It is absolutely true. It is male and female that God ordained to uniquely fulfill God's calling for human beings on earth. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, Eve was to share in Adam's high calling to rule over creation. Together, they formed the first covenant community of God's image bearers who perfectly complemented each other as they fulfilled their God-given role to reflect God's image and to reflect His glory in their respective identities. And we're going to get into that. We're, Lord willing, next week we're going to look specifically at the role of husband and wife distinctly. And we're going to go deep into that because that is absolutely important. None of the animals that Adam named could do this. Adam could not do this by himself. And no one else can do this in the context, uh, or or, or rather, um, no one else can do this in the context of marriage either. Without marriage, God's design begins with compatibility. But what is the direct application of that? Well, I would say the direct application of this is that husband and wife exist to fulfill God's will in your life, to help you fulfill God's will in your life. See, that tells us that your husband, your wife, your spouse was brought to you for a religious purpose. And this is what's so wrong with uh, non-religious families, non-religious marriages, is that The chief purpose for which God brought you a spouse was so that you can fulfill your calling as a worshiper of God. That's why. It makes marriage a divine affair. You see, it it gives it brings nobility to our marriage. It, 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 It sort of elevates marriage to its proper place. That marriage is not just some sort of social experiment. It's not just sort of an effective way to cohabit with somebody for financial reasons or for some other ulterior motive. No, no, it's not even just for romance. It's not just for sex or procreation either. It is part of God's high calling for human beings who were created in His image and that were created to reflect and to represent Him to the ends of the earth. That's what's, what's, that's what's at stake in marriage, is that we represent God. Isn't that remarkable? Doesn't that just sort of make your marriage seem a lot more significant uh, than, than what you're being told either in culture or just maybe even preconceived notions that you've had? 
And practically, this helps us to see the depth of our marriage and the God-centered nature of our marriage. Marriage is for God. Marriage is for God. And we pray that our marriages, that, that, we, will, that we will live up to this, that we will have a view of our marriage that says, marriage is not just for us to get along. It's much more than that. It's so that we will glorify God as husband and wife. Now, there's another thing, and that is not just a compatibility because all of the things that God created, nothing was suitable for, for Adam except his wife. But there's also a designed companionship. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is remarkable. In in the creation of marriage, God was creating an intimate relationship that would uniquely reflect the entire drama of redemption itself. Paul tells us that marriage itself is patterned after the reality of Christ and the church. That's what's going on in Genesis. And we can focus so much just on the biblical theology of that. Um, but it's also telling us just how profound our marriage is in the sight of God. Practically speaking, God's design of marriage is there. Uh, in that design of marriage is the idea of companionship. This is the foundation of our intimate bond in marriage. And Kent Hughes so beautifully summarizes this. Listen to what he says. Kent Hughes says, Adam's explosive astonishment, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, voiced the traditional kinship formula of Israel. That's kind of what you would say uh, to express kinship among Jewish people. Whereas in English we'd say blood relationships, the Hebrews would speak of flesh and bone. He saw her as a mirror image of himself with some agreeable differences. Calvin beautifully puts words in Adam's mouth, and he says, this is Calvin now being quoted by Kent Hughes, he says, Now at length I have obtained a suitable companion who is part of the substance of my flesh and in whom I behold, as it were, another self. Such astonished ecstasy. He had found his companion and his, and his longed-for love. He was no longer alone because God had honed Adam's naming skills or naming powers. The man spontaneously declares she shall be called woman, which is the Hebrew word isha, because she was taken out of man, which is the Hebrew word ish. The sound play celebrates their relationship. Adam uh, restated his own name embedded in hers. Adam anticipated the deepest intimacy. See, The reason why this is so foundational is because it reminds us this is what God intended for marriage to be. He intended marriage to be a discovery of the most intimate possible relationship on earth. And that's why it so perfectly reflects on a spiritual level the relationship of Christ and the church. Because think about it. We need this reminder because marriages today, there's so much to tear us apart. Obviously, there's the obvious catastrophic impact of adultery, immorality, sin in marriage. But there's also the influence of culture and what I call the worldliness of the world, meaning the carnality of the world all around us. Add to this 
the practical burdens of the busyness of life. You find yourself identifying with this, right? You find that life is busy. You find that on top of that, you have the stress of finances. On top of that, you have the task of raising children. All of this put together, the cumulative effect is that this intimacy, this companionship can get lost in the shuffle and in the scuffle of life very quickly. This, however, does not alleviate our responsibility to cultivate a sacred companionship through fellowship and mutual affirmation and love. Eve's creation from Adam's rib is remarkable for a number of reasons. Well, number one, it's a very hotly debated subject because many people you know, scoff at the idea that Eve came from a man's rib. I just recently heard uh, on conservative talk, uh, talk radio, yes, I listen to that from time to time, they were talking about this very thing, and they were saying it's just absolutely ludicrous that God created a woman out of man's rib. It sort of escapes their notice that the chapter before, God created everything out of nothing. That's a small feat, I know, in comparison. But, but seriously, liberalism for years, for centuries, has denied this supernatural act of God. And it escapes their notice that God is the sovereign creator of all things. I mean, so much for the consistency of liberalism. But Eve's creation also highlights the nature of this companionship. It touches on the role distinction involved in that, in that companionship. Uh, I quote uh, Matthew Henry at a lot of wedding ceremonies. I didn't for uh, the Navarres, but maybe I should have. But I always quote Matthew Henry in his commentary on Genesis. This is what he says, and I think it perfectly captures what's going on as Eve is being created from Adam for companionship of a particular kind. Matthew Henry says, Eve was not made out of Adam's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's so perfect. God knows what he's doing. The imagery is perfect. And what is the direct application, therefore, of this companionship. Well, although companionship is part of marriage, its maintenance and its success is not. Uh, this is where we need to pay attention. You see, we were, we were made uh, compatible by God in creation. And God brought Adam and Eve together for companionship. But in order to maintain that companionship... That's going to take work and effort. That, that is not something that just happens de facto. We need to strive to maintain that sort of companionship with one another, that, that, um, that friendship bond that should exist there. And we should not allow anything in the world to come in between that companionship. So many things can. And you know what? In marriage, tell me if you identify with this, it's a lot easier to tear down than to build up. It's a lot easier to ridicule than to affirm. It's a lot easier to condemn than to encourage. And that's why we need help with this. I mean, just think of the Genesis account, right? Adam and Eve, the first marriage, the first couple, the first family. It would be so easy for Adam to continually condemn Eve. Right? The conversation might go something like this. Is, you know, Adam's had a long, hard day working in the thorns and thistles of the garden. Right, that's kind of like for us, traffic, hard day at work, hard day at the office, dealing with coworkers, right? That's our thorns and thistles today. 
But think about it. Adam could have easily come to Eve over and over with a harsh tone and said, you know, if you just wouldn't have listened to that stupid snake, we wouldn't be in this condition. I mean, he could just throw that in her face. They lived for 900 years. He could have nagged her about that. But don't think that Eve didn't have any ammo either. Eve could have just returned the favor and said, well, if you just would have been doing your job, the serpent wouldn't have slithered into the garden in the first place. Where were you, oh man? You see, there are so many opportunities for us to tear each other down, to point out our faults, our failures, our shortcomings, but that's not our calling. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 because... The Apostle Paul reminds us that what builds up is words of faith, words of affirmation. I'm convinced uh, we're just not good at this. And for that, we can blame both Adam and Eve for the fall. We're just not good at practicing affirmation, encouraging, building up. We shy away from it too easily. When your husband and your wife comes home from a hard day at work or a hard day with the kids or a hard day... um, tending to the house or going shopping for the things that you need or keeping the house clean or whatever it is, or your husband, your wife, they're having a hard time at work, whatever it is, don't be so quick to pass over the opportunity to build them up. I'm convinced this is crucial for a successful uh, marriage. Ephesians chapter 4 Uh, beginning in verse 29, I mean, what better context to practice this or to put this into practice than in the most important relationship of all, husband and wife. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Think if that was your constant slogan. Think if that was your constant practice in your marriage where you are lavishing one another with words of affirmation and edification and encouragement, and you put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and malice. What a wonderful... How blessed would our marriages be if we could just put a guard over our tongue? So much that could be said on that point. Here's another point, last of all. Not just a designed... uh, a design companionship and a design compatibility, but also there's also a designed commitment. And that commitment to marriage is from the outset. Look back at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. Remember that he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know what's interesting about this text? As as, uh, Moses is giving the account of Genesis, uh, bear in mind, there are no mother and fathers yet. (laughs) They're the only people in the world. (laughs) So what this is is, uh, designed to do is, in a sense, prophetically uh, speak about the universal principle that comes from leaving and cleaving. We just saw this in your wedding. 
where there's a formal ceremony where we are publicly declaring that a new relationship has emerged. And that relationship actually impacts previous relationships. And it impacts previous relationships that are of the most significant kind. See, what this tells us is that that, that, that every step of marriage, there's a requirement and there's a consequence. So, for example, failure to be equally yoked will obviously result in a failure to flourish in God's designed compatibility for you. Sometimes that's of no fault of your own. Failure to seek out mutual edification, again, will fail to realize and to enjoy God's design companionship in marriage. You know, you see that so often. When, when, when marriages operate like cats and dogs always at each other's throat, I mean, how much, how much to use, borrow the, the words from uh, Peter, how much good life are you really experiencing in that home? Probably not a whole lot. Probably not a lot. And therefore, in the same way, If we fail to abide by this universal principle of leaving and cleaving and becoming one, we can damage, if not ruin, marriage altogether. It's just a call to protect our marriage, to protect our oneness, our intimacy. Now, again, just as Christ teaches us that that in the bond of Christian fellowship, something has sort of transcended our earthly relationships, so much so that Jesus can turn to his disciples and say, who is my mother, who is my brother, who is my sister, my father, etc. It is he who does the will of God. That will determine how we look at the rest of our relationships on earth is by our bond with each other spiritually. The same way with marriage. Once the marriage has been formed, once that union has taken place, guess what? All of our other fundamental relationships are impacted. Um, when spouses refuse to sever parental ties of the past, they can undermine their present marital union. Uh, This leaving, let's, let's sort of qualify this for a second, because this leaving and cleaving is not some sort of rude, cold, um, disrespectful sort of cutting off of your family or your parents. It's not that you, do no, that you no longer honor or respect your parents or you no, no longer hold them in high regard or that you no longer uh, um, value their advice or that you no longer allow them to have some sort of input in your life. Of course, they, of course they always should have that. That should always remain there. But we're talking about an issue of priority and authority. The priority has changed. See, there was a time prior to you being married where parents had stewardship over our lives. And we were called by God to unreservedly submit to their authority. Children know that now. That's what they're called to now. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right? And there's a, a commandment that comes with a promise. But in light of our new marital status, there's a new pecking order to our lives. Now, the priority is that we are bound together with our spouse. They become our priority. This is an absolutely unique uh, union that has taken place. The, the marriage union is so amazing what it expresses to us. I like what Joel Beakey says in his book on Calvinism in all of life. He quotes the English Puritan Thomas Gadiger, 
And he says this, he says, in marriage there is no society more near, more entire, more needful, more kindly, more delightful, more comfortable, more constant, more continual than the society of a man and wife, the main root source and origin of all other societies. As I was reading that list, were you not being convicted? That our marriages should live up to this right here? That we should have such a marriage that we can say there is nothing more kindly, more delightful, more comfortable, more constant, more continual than anything else in the world. Uh, That's why we need to be reminded of these basic principles. Because, let's face it, some people dread going home. Because they have to face their spouse. I mean, can you imagine being trapped in that kind of relationship where you literally dread having to go home and face the music every day? And yet some people live like that every single day of their marriage. It's awful. I mean, it almost defeats the purpose for being married. Gattaker says about a married couple, having lived together for a time as co-partners in grace here on earth, they, they will reign together forever as co-heirs in glory hereafter. Amen. That's another relationship. Once we go, once we become co-heirs hereafter, we'll no longer be married. <laughs> a new relationship, a new situation. What's the direct application of leaving and cleaving? What God instituted in Genesis. Well, I think that there's a great uh, opportunity that exists to strengthen our marriage through affirmation. See, when we prioritize the honor of our spouse, let's begin with the wife. When we tell our wives that they are more important to us than our own mother, that they are more important to us than our children, when we tell our wives that they are the most important woman in the world to us, we build them up, we honor them, we, 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 we dignify them. We show them the importance of our relationship. And listen, there will come a time, and for some of you, you've already gone through this. I know Pastor Lynn can come and tell us about this, but there's going to come a time with those children that you so love and you so cherish, that they are your world, that you look, you look at them and you see yourself in them and you pour your heart and your soul and they have stolen your heart. There's going to come a time where those kids are going to grow up, they're going to move out, and guess what? You're back to square one. It's just you. And her. It's just you and him again. And God is going to remind you that you are one. Not your children. You're not one with your children. You're not one with your parents. You are one with your spouse. Marriage is so serious. That's why if I'm going to do a wedding, I require four sessions of premarital counseling at least. And if there are issues, we go from there. But at least four sessions where we can talk about some of these rudimentary principles of marriage. Because if I'm going to be part of your covenant making, I need to know that you're walking with the Lord. And that you have a biblical worldview when it comes to marriage and family. If you don't, I promise you, you will have problems. But that's what marriage counseling is for, so we can work it out. But think about that. Same thing for a wife to her husband. When a woman shows her husband more respect, more honor, more love, more affection than any other person, she shows him that, in a sense, he is the most important man in your life. 
That's the way that it ought to be. We should lavish each other with these things, with honor, respect, and dignity, and affection. If we don't do these things, as I said earlier, this companionship, this kinship that we have, we will not maintain it. We will not work hard at it. It will disappear. It will erode. It will break down. It has to be made. We have to do this consciously and intentionally. And I hope that in the coming weeks, we will get more and more specific about just that. These points remind us of our principal calling in marriage, that we are called to the other, for the other, with the other. Our marriage knows no greater power in the principle of grace and growth than selflessness. That's what marriage is. What does it say in Ephesians? Christ gave himself for her. The key to a good marriage is to die. Die to yourself. Die to your own desires. Die to your own wish, to your own ideals, to your own concepts of what ought to be and what ought not to be. To be selfless with your time and your energy and your effort. That is what makes for a good marriage. All marriage is a reflection of Christ's own sacrificial love to the church. The standard is not any less than that. The standard is not the godly example that you see sitting next to you at church. The example example or the standard is not the pastor, though he should be held to a high standard. The, The standard is not your parents. The standard is Christ and the church. That degree of sacrificial love. That's what's involved in a good marriage. But selfishness and pride and conceit, that only leads to malice and strife and destruction in marriage. seen it so many times. You know, guys, I was so blessed to be um, doing the wedding yesterday, but I was reminded that I've seen the full spectrum I sit with people right before they're getting married. I sit with them in marital, premarital counseling. And I've sat with people at the other end of the spectrum. When the advice was not followed, the counsel was not followed, the commandments were not obeyed, the principles were not adopted, and they became negligent and lazy and naive about what marriage is. And suddenly they find themselves right back in the counseling seat with problems that have gotten so out of control that had they just obeyed the basic principles that God gave us, we'd never been there in the first place. I've been in counseling situations where it is irreparable. I've sat with couples that even though there is no immorality, The relationship is so riddled with strife and malice and bitterness and unforgiveness that there's no hope. And they sealed it with an unbiblical divorce. I've seen that. And it's sad. It's a travesty. It should really hurt us that a Christian couple can get to that point. But you can If you don't take these principles serious about how to avoid disaster, if you don't maintain your companionship, your friendship, your intimacy, as we're going to see, this is just the beginning. You know, too often we fail to reflect the biblical portrait of marriage. Too often our marriages are a perversion of the gospel. We don't treat each other the way that Christ treats the church. We don't submit to each other the way the church submits to Christ. 
We don't have that mutual love and respect. And as a result, what our marriage displays is actually a contradiction to the very thing God ordained. And what we need to do at that point, when we get to that degree, because we've all experienced it, we all know, and we all, we've all seen a measure of that in our marriages. We all know our own failures, our own shortcomings. And you know what's beautiful about Christian marriage is it is built on grace, not works. There's no condemnation in Christ. Christian marriage tells us this, that when our marriage is on the rocks, what we do is we need to renew our first love. We need to renew our first love, that is, to Christ. And I've seen when God gets a hold of a husband who has been abdicating his duties as a husband, who has not been taking his role serious as a husband. And I have seen when God takes a hold of a man and there's genuine repentance and genuine revival of the soul and genuine commitment to be the man that God calls him to be. And I just see that blossoms into a beautiful, beautiful flower. I've seen that. Likewise, I've seen women who have gone from a feminist worldview where they thought that what the culture and what the world was dictating to them all along was right, that they should strive for independence from their husband. They should strive, as a matter of fact, to rule over their husbands, just like the Bible says. And I've seen women like that adopt a Christian worldview. And what happens is so marvelous. They get excited about things like modesty, homemaking, child rearing. They get excited about homeschooling or what Ever, they get excited about the biblical worldview of manhood and womanhood. And when that happens, growth happens, blessing happens, good life happens. And so I pray that as we continue to go through these pivotal scriptures, and I, I, I challenge you, I challenge you, next week we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. You know the passage. I challenge you, meditate on that. Read that together, together as, as, as couples tonight. Let's covenant together tonight to go over that section of Scripture with our husband or wife and to read over that and to be and to have these things dwelling richly within us so that when we come together again, Lord willing, next week, we will be ready. And then after that, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. These are the foundational texts on Christian marriage, and I hope that you will be uh, blessed. I hope that your marriage will be encouraged. And I just want to I just want to speak to some of the marriages in here that aren't doing well. Um, maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're having issues. Maybe you just got married and you're literally like, I can't believe this is what I got. <laughs> that, that I am literally now dealing with another sinner. Another person is just like me. He's got all these hang-ups, all these issues, all these personality issues. You know, I, I was so in love. What happened? <laughs> well, what happened is life. What happened is reality. You realize that you got married to another sinner. And that, unlike before, you don't go home anymore. (laughs) Now you go home together and you're stuck. But I want to tell you that in the gospel, in the word of God, God has given us hope so that our marriages are not a... Uh, you know, not a bummer. It's not the stereotypical dysfunctional marriage that we see on television. It's a blessing. We long to be with our spouse. I'm praying for that for every single one of us, that we will long to be with our husband, our wife, that, that, that we will come to know this intimate friendship, that above anything, that we, that we would rather hang out with our wife, 
our husband, than any, any group of friends that we can have. That's what I'm praying for us. Let's just pray before I keep going on extra things that are not in the sermon. Father, Lord, we need your mercy and we need your help. Lord, we, we look to you and we ask for the grace that we need to, to be a, a proper biblical reflection of Christian marriage. We understand and we know, oh God, that we have real unbiblical forces and influences that threaten to undo us. And so I pray for every one of us. I pray for all of the husbands in this church that you would help us to guard our homes, to be the prophet, priest, and king of our house, to guard our sanctuary as it were. And Lord, that we would take our calling serious. That we recognize that we are called to dispense truth in our home. That we are called to lead our homes and family worship, whether it's reading scripture, memorizing scripture, singing songs, praying together, going before the throne of grace, that we would take that calling serious. And Father, I pray also for the women, the wives in this church, that you would encourage them. They have so many burdens, so many concerns. They have so many tasks. They have so many duties to do. God, would you fill them with grace? Would you give them supernatural strength, Lord, to do it in the joy of the Lord so that you would be glorified and that our marriages would paint a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. That people would look into our marriages and say, boy, I wish my marriage was like yours. And we have the glorious opportunity to point them right back to Christ, to the source, to the very vital source from which all of our blessings as married people should come. And Lord, I just pray that above everything, we glorify Christ in our marriage, that we would strive to make much of Him in everything that we do, and that that would rub off on the children, that that would rub off on the rest of the family, that people would look in and they would see that Christ is the foundation of these homes. I pray that You would strengthen heritage grace, As marriages are strengthened, may the church be strengthened for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.